You are listening to the Wi-Fi Ninjas podcast, where we talk about wireless technology. Here are your hosts, Mac Daring and Matt Starling. Hello, and welcome to the latest Wi-Fi Ninjas podcast. I am your host, Matt Starling, and join my co-host, Mac Daring. But we also have another guest on the show today, Mr. Phil Keeley. Hey. Hi, Matt. Thanks very much for inviting me along today. Um, Perhaps just to introduce myself, I work for Mr. Systems, uh, which is now part of Juniper Networks since the 1st of April. Uh, I've been in Wi-Fi since pretty much the very beginning. I was working with Symbol Technologies back in the late 90s on the Spring Protocol, which is the one megabit frequency hopping uh, solution that that led to the the Wi-Fi standard. And I've kind of been working in the industry ever since for the likes of Cisco and Aruba and Motorola and uh, you name it, I've kind of worked there. So uh, hopefully i uh, give you some information about Mr. Day. Very nice. Thanks for that, Phil. Um, okay, do you want to maybe let the listeners know a little bit more about MIST themselves, um, just in case they're not familiar or aware? Yeah, certainly. So MIST is quite a recent entry to the wireless land space. Uh, it was formed by the management team from Cisco, effectively, uh, so if you look at the people who actually formed MIST, um, it includes the likes of Bob Friday, who is the inventor of the airspace controller solution that Cisco bought back in the day that is still um, the, the mainline Cisco controller product. Um, CJ Hajila was also one of the co-founders who was working with me in Symbol um, a long time ago, back in the 90s. Uh, so those two guys, plus Sidia Mata, who was the, um, from Cisco and Trapeze, Tom Wilburn from Aero, Airspace, Cisco and uh, um, Aerohive, you know, these guys have all got a huge amount of experience in the Wi-Fi space. In fact, CJ and Bob um, were the guys who were running Cisco's wireless business when they bought Meraki. So um, they absolutely understood cloud was the way forward. Um, they bought Meraki and uh, decided that it would be very difficult to re-architect uh, a legacy cloud controller solution into what they wanted to move forward to, which was a microservices-based cloud um, in order to support the, the requirements for next-generation Wi-Fi. So these guys basically left um, the mothership uh, and uh, Cisco was initially one of our key funders um, in order to to start this project called MIST. Yeah, I, f- I found that quite interesting when we came along to your event the other day at that lovely brewery. Ah, yes, yes. Some nice beers were had by all. So, yeah, I, I mean, Cisco Cisco Investments is obviously a different part of Cisco to the, the networking division, but they they absolutely um, saw the the possibilities in what um, you know the guys were trying to achieve and we basically stole all their good stuff so they had to keep a keep their their eye on the ball I guess um, so the guy designing our access points is the guy who designed the Cisco 4800 um, you know we, we, we've effectively harvested uh, what we think is the the cream of the crop from the engineering teams uh, and the and the technical teams so um, they were a, a key investor and obviously they were one of the the people vying for the opportunity to to work Acquire mist. Um, uh, it didn't work out for them, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I think you said you had three options right when you came to being. Uh, yes, <clears throat> yes. We we can't we can't go into the details, of course. But um, <laughs> yes, I I don't think it would be a secret to suggest that Cisco were were involved in the conversation. Um, 
The advantage, of course, with the, the Juniper acquisition is there was no overlap. Um, unless Juniper needed a Wi-Fi solution, we needed everything else. Um, so that kind of fitted quite nicely. Um, so these guys you know, left the mothership with the intention of uh, effectively doing Wi-Fi right before we all uh, get too old to do anything. Um, and their, their plan was to fix two main problems in the Wi-Fi space. Um, one is to fix mediocre Wi-Fi, um, which is you know a, a classic problem. Uh, it, often you you put up with poor Wi-Fi. It's uh, difficult to troubleshoot. It's difficult to uh, get the system to understand what went wrong when things do go wrong, and things do go wrong because it's wireless. Um, so that was the first thing they were trying to fix. The second thing they were trying to to, to come up with was a better way of doing location services. So we've all been trying to do Wi-Fi location services for many years, um, and it's painful and it requires manual calibration. And the Wi-Fi radios are trying to serve data and optimize channel and power settings. So it, it just doesn't work very well under Wi-Fi. Uh, and in 2016, we saw the BLE standard um, come out, which is Bluetooth 4.0, which the device manufacturers really wanted to use as their location technology. So they, they started hiding the Wi-Fi MAC addresses um, from the client devices operating systems, making uh, integration with Wi-Fi locationing very difficult. So the, the guys who started MIST really wanted to take advantage of that Bluetooth 4.0 revolution, along with you know the Amazon Web Services that weren't available at the time Meraki built their, um, their cloud. Uh, so they wanted say- to... Yeah. Sorry, for just why why you mentioned that. That's a that's a good point you made there about um, the vendors hiding the uh, the Wi-Fi MAC address. Um, just a question: Do does the same thing happen with BLE? Is there MAC randomization with BLE, or is it just on just on Wi-Fi? The the process potentially exists on BLE, but it's not usually implemented. Um, the the BLE is seen as the as the location radio. Um, the key point is you can read that information from inside the operating system. Um, which yeah. which you can't do on the on the Wi-Fi Mac. And I bet another question that you guys get all the time as well. Um, well, my Bluetooth's not always turned on, but really, is there anyone that doesn't have wireless headphones anymore that uses Bluetooth or pairing to their car or? Exactly, exactly. And uh, the uh, the device manufacturers have been a little bit cheeky in how they uh, allow you to easily turn Bluetooth on and off. Um, from inside the interface. Uh, when you select that button to turn off Bluetooth, the Bluetooth radio is still listening. Uh, it can still be uh, it can still be woken up. You have to go into the, the main settings and disable Bluetooth for it actually to disappear. Um, so uh, the, the device manufacturers have helped us as much as possible to, to make sure, you know, by losing the, the headphone socket and such like. Bluetooth is usually on. And in most applications where you want to use um, Bluetooth as a location technology, you want to inform the end user uh, of their location. That's the whole point. You know, Google may track our location all of the time. Um, I think we're probably fairly confident of that. But it, it's useful um, embodiment of that, obviously, is Google Maps. Uh, you wouldn't expect um, Google not to know your location when you're using Google Maps. And it's exactly the same for indoor locationing using BLE. Usually, you're trying to provide the user with blue dot follow me type functionality or services based on their location. So there is usually an application involved on the mobile device, and therefore that application has control of whether or not the Bluetooth is turned on or certainly informs the user they need Bluetooth in order to, in order to use that application. 
So it's not as um, as difficult as it might first appear. Um, and we still do location services using Wi-Fi as well, um, but it has uh, the the same limitations as it does with other other people. Yes, yeah, so, so you, you guys would be doing more Wi-Fi trilateration with your um, access points, but your correct. APs, you've got the multiple element Bluetooth um, antenna array, which would be very similar if you compared it to the 4800 for Wi-Fi, the hyperlocation AP exactly. or the Halo module. But you, instead of doing it with Wi-Fi, you guys are doing something very similar, but with Bluetooth, right? Um, it's similar. Um, uh, the the Halo module is uh, is connected to the third radio, which is traditionally a receive radio. Um, ours is slightly different in that we can receive across the multiple antennas for tracking of active Bluetooth devices, but we can also transmit out of those antennas. So we have eight transmit and eight receive antennas on that um, on that antenna array, and that allows us to effectively send. Unique BLE beacons um, down to the client devices, so they they can treat each access point as eight GPS satellites effectively. So each um, BLE signal goes out at a 45 degree angle um, from the, say, say the north of the access point, northwest, west, southwest, south, southeast, east, and northeast. Um, so you have these eight beams leaving the access point, each with a unique minor number in BLE terms, in um, iBeacon terms, so the a, a mobile device, if it's in range of two access points, it might get four or five signals from each access point at different strengths in different directions. And therefore, from those two APs, we can get um, the mobile device itself can calculate a, 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 an accuracy of one to three meters of, of, from a location perspective. It's so, very good, right? <laughs> uh, we think so. Um, it's it's um, and it, it, the the key point of this is this is sub second. This is where the microservices uh, absolutely come in. In order to do this with an on premise solution, you know, the, the Cisco uh, and these guys have tried, you know, very very hard to do this on the Wi Fi side. But CMX um, is is probably the cream of the crop in the in the competing products. But I'm yeah, not. No, you know, that has like a two second refresh yeah. rate. Exactly, which if you're Don't moving quickly. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you're still there, Mac. I thought you might fall asleep. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. I'm just listening. <laughs> it's just that little bit too long if you're walking down a corridor. If, you're, if, you've, if you pass the, the junction you're supposed to be turning by two and a half seconds before the system tells you to turn, that's frustrating. So you need that, that genuine sub-second response for that actually to work. Um, you can feel that. You can feel that. We've done quite a lot of testing with hyperlocation versus mist and the uh, Blue Dot experience it yeah. feels differently. So with Mist, it really feels like Google Maps. It feels like the GPS and it works like a GPS. So uh, so what is the difference between the uh, Wi-Fi and BLE and the GPS? So you said that BLE is similar to GPS, where our devices, they listen to the beams from the satellites, from the directional uh, antennas built into your access points. But with Wi-Fi, it's the infrastructure, it's the access points that are listening to the data generated by the clients, correct? So... In Wi-Fi terms, uh, you can do location either by the client understanding the BSS IDs it can hear and the signal strengths. But obviously, that needs a lot of processing power on the client, and the client has to be um, informed of those BSS ID locations. But that certainly was tried uh, in the early days. Typically, now it's a, it's a dedicated scanning radio on the access point that is used in order to try and locate those clients and listen to transmissions on those clients. But of course, that dedicated radio has to scan 
all channels that may be in use um, in that area. Uh, so as we get to uh, more dense deployments, uh, you may be you may be scanning all the five gig and all the two point four gig channels, and that's really where the delay comes in, um, because the the client uh, is is only on ever one of those channels, but there may be sixty, seventy, a hundred clients in the area that on different channels that you need to to locate. So. In using Bluetooth uh, as as the mechanism, obviously Bluetooth isn't doing anything else other than perhaps letting people listen to their music. Um, it's a obviously it's a frequency hopper. Um, it's it's only focused on location. So um, by us transmitting a unique signal in different directions, uh, the access point can act as a GPS satellite effectively. Now, we didn't want, you know, if you use Google Maps, you'll find the phone gets quite hot and it uses quite a lot of battery because the, the phone is doing the, the GPS calculation and the, the calculation of point in space from, uh, from uh, GPS is, is quite a complex one. So we take the information that the client hears and just post it into the cloud. The cloud then does the mathematics as far as where the client is and feeds it back to the client. So the client, once a second, effectively gets told its location um, as an XY coordinate on a map without doing any of the mathematics itself. Mm-hmm. So this this allows us to, to save processing cycles on the AP, but it also means that we know where the client is and the client knows where the client is. So it gives us a very, very good synergy to be able to um, present them with information based on their location. Yeah, I feel like we got a little bit overexcited here, and we've jumped jumped the gun yeah, on how we're going <laughs> to we're going to come to the the location stuff in a bit because I feel like okay. we probably should have um, covered off like, about mist, like what, like how is it different? Like you talk about um, in the cloud, like, there's some other like cool features we think you guys have got that um, it might be worth explaining a little bit in a little bit more detail, um, and then maybe go over a bit more of the functionality of mist. Um, before we get into the really really interesting stuff around the uh, the virtual beacon, but I know I couldn't help I couldn't help it either. I just wanted to, I just wanted to jump into that no, and start talking about it. Um, uh, okay, so, so let's just start with, with so how is mist how is mist different because we see a lot of like marketing um, and a lot of things that go out. Let's say like how you guys are the game changers and everything is so different with you guys. So maybe if you could just explain on so your point of view. From the from the Wi-Fi perspective, I mean, you know, if we're talking about the actual Wi-Fi interface that talks to the clients, it's the same chip as everybody else. All right, there's very little you can actually do. I mean, Ruckus is still doing their bespoke antennas. Um, you know, we, we've we've built the Bluetooth antenna for a differentiation, but the physical wireless interface is now at a point where the standards in the organisations have improved to such a point. If you apply all the standards like 11R and Q and V and all that stuff. The roaming, we're getting 12 millisecond roam times on, on 11R. This is good enough. It's it's a great, we've got to a point, and particularly with AX, we're now at a point where the, the Wi-Fi standard is, is strong enough um, to not need a whole load of proprietary bits and pieces over the top. So... So you mentioned you, you, you mentioned AX. So you, I know you what guys, you're going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, you've got the, what is it the AP43? Exactly. The AP43 is our AX, and it's available as an E model, which is external antennas. It's yeah. a it's a four by four um, dual radio. Uh, it has dual five gig capable radios. Um, and you know, one of the the key points about Mist is using the the whole AI argument of understanding the client experience. That's just, what. Just one one question on the AP43 that I know Mac knows what I'm about to ask. Is it proper Wi-Fi six? Yes. 
Sorry, yes, we are Wi-Fi certifiable. certifiable, not Wi-Fi okay. compatible. I think it's Very been good. amazing how how honest the the other vendors have been on their on their websites with that. I mean, it's a kind of a subtle uh, differentiation, but yeah, the OFDMA up and down is supported, which is kind of the big thing that's been missing out of the eight by eight stuff. Um, yeah. It's only a major feature of the of the entire standard, but hey, let's move on. They got a, they got a product earlier than us, so well done them. Um, so like we, HD and HD ready, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Seven twenty was always enough. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so we we waited to make sure the product was right. Um, we've done some other bits and pieces. We've improved our scanning radio. Um, so on the forty three, the scanning radio is a two by two. Um, uh, it's a two by two AAC, but it is uh, it's certified for transmit. So um, this really allows us to fill the small hole that we had in uh, matching the CAPE sensor, for example, of uh, be, being able to simulate client traffic from, uh, from a sensor or from uh, it will directly come from one of the neighboring APs now. So we've built in that ability to, to have that CAPE sensor type functionality into the AP from the get-go. So that rather than just a scanning radio now, it can go active and, and do client type functions. Um, we've also built some sensors into the AP. Uh, so there is a, a temperature, a humidity, and a pressure sensor, and a tilt sensor. Uh, in the AP. So we'll now know if that AP is level or not when we're trying to use it for locationing, which obviously so is... So you can use, also you can use missed access points as a baby monitors then, right? With all exactly this that. Exactly that. Um, all, <laughs> and also one, one more question, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, no, no. For, our, for, for our good friend, Andrew McHale, uh, you mentioned like a very quick roaming uh, as a part of Wi-Fi standard with optimizations of like, you know, 802.11R and, and K and whatever. Uh, is it over the air or over the DS that MIST is normally supporting? Do you know? Um, we do both. Uh, if you have the right level of access, when you turn on 11R, mm -hmm. you have a little extra tick box that appears up to say enable Zebra mode um, because Zebra <laughs> handheld devices will only do it over the air. Um, so effectively, you can choose. Uh, by default, we don't do it over the air, but you you, you can if you want. Um, so yeah, so we have we have zebra mode as we call it um, because we have a lot of retail customers. Um, so they needed to be able to support over the air as well. Perfect. Twelve milliseconds is still very quick for a roam. You ain't going to notice that if you're on a voice call. No, we've we've literally actually on the Zebra handhelds, um, you know, the multifunction devices that are voice as well as scanning and everything else. You know, you don't even hear a click anymore. You know, you, you know you've roamed because you're watching the screen, um, but other than that, uh, you literally cannot hear a click on the voices. And I'd love to say it's our amazing access points, and of course it is partially, <laughs> but primarily it's because the standards actually really cool. Um, they've actually, you know. Made roaming, uh, made roaming work, and now it's supported on pretty much every modern client. Um, it's awesome. I mean, the big problem we've got moving forward, I think, is open networks because they obviously don't have the 11R capabilities, and in open networks, it's still really a client decision uh, to do that roam. So the the open networks are still. Uh, half a second to a second type roam times in some cases. Now it's usually guest networks, and we don't care about them, right? But mm -hmm. even so, well, uh, yeah. Uh, so why why is that? Is because if we cannot support uh, like 802.11k with enable list support, so clients they do panic scan when they want to roam. Well, I think from the conversation that we had at your um, last event, Phil, was the fact that at the moment, you guys, if you you can't just turn on like 11k. You have to turn on the full package. You haven't got yeah, the exactly, option to, yeah. to, to just tune, like just to have 11R, R and K, R, K and V. It's either R, K and V or not turned on at all at the moment, right? Effectively, we've tried to keep it keep it simple. 
Um, and you know, we want to see people moving more away from um, open networks as a as a mechanism. It's a, you know, there's just better ways of doing the likes of guest access and those sort of things these days without having open networks everywhere. So. Okay. Um, but well, as as we are talking about guest networks, maybe this is um, the right time to maybe talk about how the architecture works with Mist and the security. Because I know a lot of customers um, they always have that question: of, oh, what about what about the security? Everything's going back to the cloud. If you say compare a a Cisco deployment or how we would do like foreign controllers and then anchor controllers to like separate guest networks how yep. how does mist handle the like the security from that sort of side of things and the architecture um i know there's an, there's another ethernet port on on the ap what is that for i know i've just bombarded a hell of a lot of questions there but i'll, I'll let you just just explain just talk us through yeah. now. No problem. I'll learn some more, just writing them down. <laughs> okay, no worries. So Mist obviously is a cloud. Um, and by, by default, cloud systems tend to do local offload at the AP level. That's that's the norm. Um, and we're seeing more and more customers accepting that as the norm. As we start to see broadcasts being suppressed on Wi-Fi in, in total, because they don't work very well, um, just, be, just as as things get more congested, the broadcasts going out at those low data rates um, are not not reliable. So uh, more often than not, we just you know allow the necessary DHCP and ARP and stuff that sort of things, but everything else gets killed. So the the need to tunnel everything to the middle um, is reduced if you if you're if you're not trying to control broadcast domains. Right, that's the whole reason for that whole tunneling and VLAN stuff that we've we've been doing all these years. Um, but that said, we do have options. So we support L2TP version three um, as a tunneling protocol, uh, primarily because that's very popular in the uh, public access market in the US. Uh, but we can tunnel back to a Cisco ISR, for example. So um, you can tunnel on a per VLAN basis. Um, so an SSID could put VLAN 10 locally and VLAN 20 through the tunnel, for example. Um, so you can have local breakout as if you had like a safe, if, sorry, but to go back to Cisco again, but say if you had like the FlexConnect model access point, um, if you convert your AP to a FlexConnect model version and you've, yeah, like you said, you want to send all your guest traffic centralized, but then you want to have your corporate broken out locally. Um, and it, this is basically the equivalent of that, right? Exactly that. Yeah, but we're we're kind of the opposite. Flex Connect is our default mode, and we can um, uh, we can tunnel if we need to. Now, we obviously don't want to sell Cisco ISRs because you know they're they're not they're not made by us. So we have a, a product that we've brought out recently called Mist Edge, um, which is still a microservices architecture. Uh, it's just a local uh, instance of those microservices on premise, um, which is primarily today for tunnel termination. So in Cisco terms. Think of it as an anchor controller. I hate saying the word controller. If my bosses hear me, they will. Find me. <laughs> uh, um, okay, so it's like a wireless concentrator when you look at a racket world. Exactly. Exactly. It's um, okay. it's just literally there today to terminate tunnels. It will do more in the future. Um, the, there's a whole raft of things that we might want to do um, with a local presence on the network that we can't do from the cloud. Uh, so that will uh, will start to get involved in that. But um, so as it stands today, it's a tunnel terminator and it's effectively a Dell server um, that you build on a, a Linux platform and you run our software over the top of it. Um, okay. Does but it, it have to it, be an appliance or can you virtualize it? Um, VMware version comes out in Q. Well, half one, I have to say now, being Juniper. Um, we only did in halves, not quarters. Very early half one. 
Um, so it's in it's in testing at the moment. So it will be out very very soon, um, and those can be set up um, as as clusters. There's four models effectively, uh, 500 APs, uh, 5,000 APs, uh, 5,000 APs with double the throughput, or 10,000 APs. So those are the kind of four models, um, and the, the up to 40 gig. And it's it's just a box, right? It's just a server, but the the, the 10,000 APs does has a 40 gig throughput on it. Um, so if you want to tunnel, if tunneling is your is your thing, then we can do tunneling. Um, this this really will still have a, have its place in some some environments. Anywhere where you do want to tunnel that guest traffic to a, a DMZ somewhere, then then absolutely we can do that. Yeah, um, we, we personally can, we are not big fans of anchors, but you know there are some clients that they've embraced that architecture for years and they are not ready to, to jump exactly. on something else. And we also have um, a firewall inside the AP. Uh, so, you know, you could put all of your guest traffic on the corporate network and we could still control the traffic to make sure that those guests couldn't see anything on the corporate network. I'm not suggesting that's the architecture you should move forward with. Um, but, you know, that capability does exist in the AP. Yeah, um, and that's, that's quite interesting. So shall we just maybe spend a few minutes talking about it? So uh, how, do you, how do you do it? Is it called like a policing in a Mr. dashboard and you can leverage internal firewall uh, functionality built into the access point to to yes. do what? So uh, do you abstract the VLANs and ACLs? Is it like an answer to to TrustSec? Um, not quite. Um, I mean, uh, you know, the TrustSec would be much more like the uh, DMVPN um, type or EVPN in in um, in with Huberwaters in Juniper terms. Um, so you know, that's that's more where you're putting an overlay over the top. Um, uh, and we don't, you know, in, in TrustSec, ICE actually pushes out the policies the same as in, in ClearPass. So we're not currently accepting policies from those engines. However, we are 100% API driven. So those engines could be pushed, could could be polled for their information and pushed into our firewall policies. And we've got schools running um, uh, Siri to actually control the firewall in the AP. So the teacher can press Siri and say, hey, Siri, turn off Facebook in my classroom. And the Siri API talks to our API and creates a firewall rule uh, to disable Facebook on that AP. <laughs> I mean, you know, teachers controlling cool. the, the Wi-Fi through their phones, it's all going to be, it's all going to end up badly, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> What could go wrong? <laughs> exactly. So our focus really on the access point firewall is really to do things that the corporate firewall can't. So we can create policies that are location aware, for example. So if you're in the reception area, you can do Facebook. If you're in the main main, main part of the uh, of the office, you couldn't do Facebook. You know, so that's something a corporate firewall at the edge could never actually achieve. Now, our application awareness is is, is limited. It's um, based on around RDNS rather than any sort of a alleged DPI, um, because there's no SSL intercepts on on access points anywhere because uh, it's just not viable. Uh, then you know we've left the application awareness to the the the, the firewall part of the business, um, but we do basic application stuff so we can do some some local level controls. We can also create policies based on um, the application that is running on the handheld device. So when you create an application using um, using the Bluetooth side of things, uh, you can create a, a UUID. For that application, and we can read that UUID and, and say, okay, this guy is running the retailer app 
um, for the retailer that he's in today and therefore we'll let him do different things to the guy who isn't running the retailer app. You know, so that sort of granularity is just not viable or feasible on a, on a core firewall, whereas it's absolutely something we can do at the edge. So we can do you know the usual IP, IP layer, port layer, um, Mac layer blocking. We can do groups of devices. We can create policies based around um, uh, the VLAN that someone's on. We can also, from a radius perspective, pull down um, effectively a, a user group. We use filter ID as the particular um, part of radius that we actually pull that information from. And that allows us to basically create a policy based on the group that they're in, effectively. Um, so this uh, firewall really is is designed to give us um, the extra control at the edge, but not but in any way designed to replace the, the corporate firewall. Um, these firewall rules can also be uh, applied you know, from a, a, an organizational level or down to a site level or down to an individual AP level. So uh, it's it's very, very granular, the control that you have uh, over, those, over those firewall policies. It's a nice feature to have, though. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it, uh, we we've we've had a lot of success with it. And we're also using this for integration with Airspace uh, and uh, and ClearPass. So, uh, the if you're sending down the Airspace a ACL name, we can map that to a, a group name in our uh, in our system and apply policies so that when the ICE controller actually comes up with a an ACL group name based on your NAC and authentication back end, you can then pass that down as a as a policy name to us, and we can apply rules based on that. And in, in the ClearPass one, um, that's the Aruba user role. So you know we've built the integration with the third-party products in order to make moving across to MIST very, very straightforward. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's, that, that, that's quite hot. So our integration with ICE is there, integration with ClearPass is, is there, and the packet inspection, like NBAR on you know, locally switched access points, is probably a little bit too much for the access points sometimes to go through the DPI uh, well, without using a controller for that? The problem is doing, doing any sort of DPI, unless you're actually going to do SSL intercept, you're always going to be making guesses. Um, and you know, if you look at any, any wireless solution that claims to do DPI, the mm. section called other or TCP <laughs> traffic or stuff we didn't know what it was, Gov, you know, that's getting a bigger, bigger section every time you look at the interface. Um, and that's where people are going to hide stuff, right? That's, there's, there's no point putting a security system in place that only sees the easy stuff. <laughs> um, so you need to do, if you're going to do a packet inspection and you're going to do security, then do it on a device that's designed to do it and has got the resources to do it. And to do SSL intercept, as you guys know, you have to have a certificate in place. You don't want to install a certificate for every access point across your network um, in order to do that SSL intercept. It's just, A, it's not security, uh, in security terms, a good idea, and B, in practical terms, it's not a good idea. So... Um, these are layer two bridges, guys. You've got to remember that. Um, that's what an AP is. Um, are they not the switch now? With the, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to have to hang up now. Uh, it's been very nice talking to you. just gone too far. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an MP, MPLS router and a switch, mate. It's awesome now. You can do all this stuff. <laughs> I hope you don't edit that so that sounds worse than it is. Uh, <laughs> of course, I will, I, will, I will leave it there. And how about rate limiting? I hope that we can we can add it to. So we can do rate limiting at a per client level, a per um, uh, or a per wireless LAN level, and we can do that and, and per application level. 
um, uh, within the AP as well. So, so those basic rate limits are are incorporated as well. Matt, now it's your turn. What do you think about it? I mean, I'm not really a fan of rate limiting. I think that's. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, it's better to do it at the at the firewall level rather than clogging the air up with retries. Yeah, because yeah. that's effectively what you're doing. Um, yeah. So keep the wireless clean. Uh, I mean, you just want to get people on and off as fast as possible. Well, I have had experience in the past where you know, with a very poor internet connection, we did a press box at one of the one of the the motor racing courses, and they had a three meg internet pipe. Uh-huh. Right, so we we I mean it was early days we were running at 11 n speed so you know 130 odd meg connection speed, um, and because their internet pipe was so slow, the you just ended up filling the air with retries, so we ended up dropping it down to six meg on the Wi-Fi and everything worked perfectly. I mean you know so <laughs> hopefully we're away from that these days, but um, you know by slowing the clients down by giving them a slower association speed it actually reduced the retries and made things work. Uh, again, this is not a design session. Please don't do that unless you really <laughs> have to. Um, but, but, but at desperate times. Um, so, okay. I mean, w- what we okay. haven't really looked at is the whole um, AI part of, of what we're trying to do within the, within the, the MIST just, platform. Just before we move into AI, because that is extremely interesting and very cool. One more question around integration. Mm-hmm. Um, with MDM platforms, how easy is it to integrate uh, missed with say some sort of MDM platform. So I mean, you, you know, the, the MDM and Stroke NAC um, is is almost a, a third, a separate a separate product. I mean, we do have um, integration with with a couple of them. So built into the wireless LAN, um, you can enable today AirWatch. Um, because that was the first one that we did. And if you enable AirWatch, then effectively we will um, use their API to talk to them and see if we know this client and and redirect them to the registration page, all that good stuff. Um, but we're doing um, a, uh, a lot of a lot of work with with various vendors. But most of it, all we need to do is put them on a VLAN based on their authentication, be that MAC address authentication or 82.1x authentication and support COA. Um, so we put them on a VLAN, they do stuff on that VLAN, they kick them off the VLAN, and we put them on another VLAN. Um, so it's it's pretty straightforward um, for, for us to integrate with any of those. Uh, and because of the API in the back end, uh, we can... Uh, augment that as much as as much as we like um so the there are various um sort of press releases on our website for for most of the uh uh most of the vendors for 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 for, for NAC and mdm solutions um we, we fit in with most of those guys okay nice and the last one last one last one i promise yeah i was going to ask <laughs> I'd say, i'm sure you probably had another question on the integration stuff <laughs> yeah, around guest Wi-Fi. So we can integrate it with the MDM platforms. It's nice. It's superb. Uh, do you do your own splash pages? Can we can we customize them nicely and easily? Uh, as you said, we can use like policies that are uh, geographically aware of the location of the access point. So that probably is quite helpful. But what can we authenticate against? Can we authenticate just against the local database of users, or can we authenticate against like I don't know the AD in the cloud in like you know uh, Azure or whatever? Or can we just authenticate using uh, your own splash pages, and then we use the backend synchronization with a radio server in the backend? Uh, what's what's the normal flow for for guests with Mist? So we have 
lots of ways. Um, so we support our own portal, uh, which is obviously cloud-based. Um, we have a bypass button. So if the cloud is not available, you can choose to not let people on or let people on uh, by default. Um, we then have uh, so we then have the option for an external portal where you can forward it to a URL and then use our API to feedback whether or not they passed. Um, so those are the two primary functions. And the, the, the external portal is how typically we use ClearPass and, and ICE on the guest side of things. We just hand the, the, the portal control over to those guys and they come back and say yes or no. Um, and we put them on the relevant network based on what they come back with. Um, if you're using our internal portal, um, every piece of text on the screen is configurable. Um, we support... 40 or so languages, um, I think, at the moment. Uh, so you can support multiple languages. The default language can be whatever you want because it's just text that you type in. Um, but you can, uh, you know, check Danish, Greek, English UK, and English US. Yeah, we're, we're like with that company. Um, and, <laughs> you know, Spain. Apparently, we only support Arabic in Saudi Arabia, which uh, upset some of my Dubai colleagues the other day. But uh, you know, th there are various languages that you can configure um, on the system. On, and then you have the logos, you have the usual background colors and the pictures that you can put in. Uh, we have an opt-out button that you can enable where we won't store anything about that client. Um, you can have just do not save user data where we won't, we won't save the username, but we will still save the MAC address. Um, terms and conditions, usual stuff. So back to your actual question, having done the sales pitch. Um, <laughs> so, um, so we don't support radius as an authentication type. Um, if you want to do radius, then we would use the external portal and you would do that locally. The problem is um, that any sort of cloud communication, um, particularly with radius today, you know, the, the, the communication between the access point and that central service um, is, in a radius remote access style in user service, you know, it's not brilliantly secure. Um, so we didn't want to do the, the, the radius option because if we're hosting the, the, the cloud, how do we get to the radius server? If the portal is running in the cloud, how do you access the radius server? So you then have to proxy through the AP. It just gets messy. So what we support today is a passphrase. So you can just have a passphrase that you enter. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can do email authorization or, or text message authorization. Um, you can do sponsored guest access, whereby uh, the client can basically um, put in the email address of who's visiting based on the domain. It will get an email, and then they click a button to say yes, let them on. Um, Google, Facebook, Amazon sign-ins. Um, not many people give up their Amazon credentials for their bit of free Wi-Fi, um, but you know. Yeah, I can't say I would be fair. Really? <laughs> you trust OAuth, right? It's it's fine. <laughs> um, but they're kind of a big customer, right? So they wanted to be on the splash page, so they're on the splash page. Um, so Microsoft supported and Azure is supported. So um, we can do Azure um, sign-in, which can be quite cool in environments that don't want to use Radius, because obviously Azure is still a way behind on, on Radius support for exactly the same reasons. Um, uh, so what we can do is, you know, if you just use Appreciate Key from a security perspective, you can then create an Azure captive portal that a, a Windows device that is part of that Azure domain will effectively go through invisibly. So it effectively authenticates through with this as your credentials in the background. So the user never gets a splash page. So you 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 don't get the best security from an encryption point of view uh, because you're just using a pre-shared key, but you do get the authentication um, without user input and and then you, and you don't need a radius server to do all of that, which is kind of cool. 
Um, yeah, it is kind of cool. So in short, you can do pretty much everything, except if you wanted to use a splash page presented by, let's say, Mist with a backend AD, uh, yeah. AD uh, credentials check, you have to use external NAC server for, for that, which is fair enough. And yes. that leads us very nicely to, uh, we've discussed like open, open for guests. And it's not the best, right? It's like an old, old school way of doing things. There is no encryption. Uh, the question is, what are the alternatives for open, open for guests? Is it open roaming? So um, in an ideal world, we would use a pre-shared key for guests. Um, so, you know, Mist supports the multiple pre-shared key function that has become popular. I think even Cisco are trying to support it now. Um, so we have, again, using our API, so there are various companies such as Envoy um, that do the guest registration system. So when you turn up at a, a, custom, a, a, a company, you fill in your details on an Envoy touchscreen. Um, well, Envoy now have a link into Mist where they generate a pre-shared key for that, vi for that visitor and display and print that on the visitor's badge. And then, then when that visitor checks out through the Envoy system, um, the key is deleted dynamically in the system. It's so that, cool. that pre-shared key is completely seamlessly managed. All we see is an entry saying key, key was created by Envoy, key was deleted by Envoy. Um, and we did nothing for that development and our system just got better. Uh, don't you just love APIs? Um, <laughs> so we're seeing more and more people who are looking at guest uh, access using techniques like that. Because obviously, you know, the, the scanning the QR code now for mobile devices is a really easy way of getting devices on the network. Um, so pre and they... they uh, in most cases, they fix the problem of the key changing every time they arrive because they just scan the new QR code and it overwrites the the settings in the in the mobile device. It doesn't fix the laptop stuff, but um, you know, it's it, the majority of people are, are, are moving more and more to tablets and, and mobile devices. So um, the QR code is is certainly an option. Um, so multiple pre-shared keys. We can also put them in different VLANs. So this is a great story from an IoT perspective. Um, if, you, if your IoT devices are, are, are not yet certificate capable, then you can you can give them a, a unique pre-shared key um, per device or per type of device, uh, and then map them to a VLAN based on that pre-shared key. Uh, so and then obviously apply firewall policies and everything either at the firewall or at the AP based on that on that VLAN as well. Um, so rather than having hundreds of different SSIDs for different functions, you can effectively have your corporate. ETLS, nice, properly secured network, and then a, another network for everything else. Um, so your guests go on it, your, pre, your IoT goes on it, you know, everything goes on it. But because they're separated by VLANs, you've, you've, you've suppressed the broadcast stuff, so that kind of goes away. Um, you, know, you can actually get to a, a situation where you can really minimize the SSIDs, but still maintain a decent amount of functionality on the system. Hey, it's Mark here. We were carried away again and recorded one and a half hour podcast, this time with Phil. And we are splitting it into two parts to make it more digestible. Thanks for listening and please tune back in for part two in a few weeks. Bye.